Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Christy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Hi, Michael. It's great to be here today. So where in the world are you calling in from? Because it sounds really clear. So I'm actually calling in from Bermuda. Um, I was born and raised on this island in the Atlantic Ocean, 21 square miles, um, but I've lived in five different countries, been educated across a bunch of others, and then moved home a couple of years ago. So my business is based here and most of my clients, though, um, it depends. Sometimes the US, UK, Canada, the Caribbean, and uh, other global locations. So you're living the dream life, basically. <laughs> it's not bad. It's not bad. Can't complain. So let's get straight into this. Right? <laughs> You've got a great career. You've done some amazing work, actually. But I want to start with a phrase I've seen you use. And I haven't seen this phrase before. And I want you to explain it for the audience. And let's build a discussion from there. And the phrase is intentional risk-taking to build one's career. What does that mean? Yeah, it's a great question. So... Sometimes um, we don't even see risks or identify them accurately. So what I talk about in my book is really how do we identify and you know isolate those bold moves that we have the opportunity of making in our careers and then proactively plan for them? And what is the method in which we do that? So just as if you were taking on, and I know a lot of people on the line are from a consulting background or a strategy background, just as if you were looking at a strategic project or initiative or project within a company or with a client, it's taking that same lens to risk-taking in our own careers and approaching it with that level of method and techniques and preparing for different outcomes as well. I like that definition. But what I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, most people try to avoid risks in their career. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very yep. counterintuitive. So unpack how this advice came about. What's the background body of knowledge that sits behind this? Yeah, well, Michael, you're absolutely right. I mean, when you think about risk and most of the research that I've done is the initial um, level of angst that people have, even with that word, is... Um, is huge. And people think about fear and uncertainty and self-doubt. And in, in common terms, we think about how to mitigate, manage, or minimize risk. But over the years of researching successful senior level women, um, what I've seen is this amazing trend, which is those that have built truly bold and brilliant careers and overcome particularly some of the, you know, gender nuances that exist in the world and gender binds are ones that look at risk through a new lens and look at it as an opportunity, as an opportunity to make a bold move. And I have the choice and I'm in the driver's seat of my career. And this is true for women and men, but it's been really interesting to kind of put the gender lens on this and think about this quote that I, I always say, you might've read this, which is like brilliant careers are seldom built without bold moves. And how can we reimagine risk as bold moves rather than something that we need to mitigate? I like that. 
It's a very healthy way to think about risk because it's always going to be there. So how do you use it to our benefit? Speaking about women specifically, I've heard this term before. I think I may have read this in a Harvard Business Review article, the concept of a glass cliff, whereby Mm -hmm. many female leaders are promoted into leadership positions when a company is facing such a crisis that nobody wants to take the role and they're almost given a role where they set up to fail. Now, in my experience, I've seen that to be largely true. So it seems as if for female leaders, I'm sure it happens to males as well, but it seems as if they need to actually have a strategy for embracing risk because that's usually the best route for them to be promoted. Is that a good way of thinking about it? So I think it's interesting that discussion. I mean, there's been so many different analogies in the gender space around the ceiling or McKinsey and Lean In came in and they were like, it's the broken ladder to manager. We've also heard of the cliff. We've heard Mm -hmm. years ago of the labyrinth. Um, But in regards to the cliff specifically, I think it's about, again, let's not, it's not about telling women just to take on this risk irrespective of what it involves and go for it when they may be setting themselves up for failure. It is, ta- it is giving them the tools to assess whether this is a risk worth making and prepare for the outcomes on the back end. So when you think about this cliff, it's, it, there is, there will be a chance of success of failure of loss or gains. That is the definition of risk. But then how do we empower and equip women to intentionally take those risks with a model or a method to do that? And as you said, set them up for success, irrespective of the outcome. So what does their support look like? Their stakeholders, their success advisors, their safety net. And that's really where what, what I'm interested in. Well, I like that. So to paraphrase this so the audience can pick up some of the key points you were saying and build on it and use it is we are going to face risks in our careers. Taking intentional risks can be good for us, provided we have the ability to pass the opportunities and determine what could be a good risk and then avoid what is a bad risk, which is really setting us up for failure. Is that a good way of thinking about it? Yeah, so definitely that's one way of thinking about it is assessing whether this is a risk worth making. But in a lot of cases, I'll tell you in my experience, I generally encourage particularly women to err on the side of risk um, just because of our natural tendency to overinflate potential negative consequences of taking a risk of, you know, overthinking about the worst case scenario. So I'm looking at how do we cognitively kind of think about erring on the other side. And for me, it's not just about assessing risk. It's not about whether this risk will just result in success or failure and avoiding those that will cause failure. I think it's also about essentially the definition of a career risk is one that could result in gains or losses, successes, or failures. But I want to equip individuals to think about when things do fail, how do you harness that for further strength and further success? And really thinking about flipping the switch almost on that mindset so they can continue to progress than if they played it safe. So in my view, often an intentional and strategic risk, even when the output's not what you desired, still can propel you further than if you if you made the consistent choice to play it safe. Now, that's a very nuanced and important distinction you are making. So there's two parts here. One is about, and we're using females as one broad group. Obviously, we're generalizing, but you're saying on average, females tend to be less 
risk averse relative to males. So one piece of advice is lean more into risk. And the other part is when things don't work out as planned, how can you eventually make this work to your benefit? Are there some examples you have of leaders doing that? So I actually think <laughs> almost every successful female leader that I've interviewed has over the years in research or coached um, has incorporated that mindset. And it's interesting. I just wanted to kind of clarify. I mean, this isn't, um, I'm building upon the research of so many people that have come before me. And, you know, when I looked at women and risk, it, it reminded me of the phenomenal and work of Carol Dweck, um, which yes. was really foundational in this space, which said that, you know, often when women fail, there's an outcome identity conflation. And we think that we are a failure. While if men fail, they think that failure is data and how can I improve? And granted, I know there are nuances across cultures, across um, contexts, across age groups, but in general, those themes have been proven again and again. And so it's been about reimagining that from that gender lens. Um, in terms of women that have really embodied that, I think, um, it's interesting. Uh, I'm thinking back to what year it was, but years ago, I had the distinct privilege of interviewing Lena Nair, who was the chief human resources officer of Unilever Global. Yeah. And she was based in London. And I went and interviewed her in her London offices for a uh, research report that myself and my research partner, Lauren Noel, were writing. And now she's actually gone on to um, be uh, the CEO of Chanel Global. And she had many firsts. Um, she was, you know, the first women in these roles, the first woman of color, the first, you know, and this, there were all of these things that she was doing. And she talked consistently about taking risks on small scales every single day and then harnessing those insights for further growth. And she's just one example of many. Um, another is uh, Betsy Myers. She was a senior advisor mm -hmm. to President Clinton and President Barack Obama, who I've interviewed and is actually a really close uh, mentor and colleague. And she talked about you know being in over her head so many times and what that process of continuous learning and refinement looked like throughout her life. And she went on to you know be the head of the um, Center for Executive Leadership. Um, uh, at Harvard Kennedy School and the leadership programming there. She started a program for women in leadership at Bentley and has had this amazing career of so many twists and turns and so many valleys and peaks. But it's that authenticity that I love in these interviews, the richness of how do I learn and refine my approaches uh, based on when things have gone wrong, when my risks have gone wrong. So the learning comes from the intentional risk-taking and the more calculated intentional risk-taking, the faster they learn and the faster they grow. Is that a good way of thinking about it? Yes. And that would make sense because if you put two people at the same starting point and one is behind that same capability, the one mm -hmm. who learns at a faster rate, assuming they apply what they've learned, should overcome the one who started at a higher level. But intuitively from what I've seen, females tend to be discouraged from risk-taking. At least that's what I've seen from the advice that's out there. Why do you think that is the case? And how do we change that? Fascinating question. I could take this whole time answering it. Um, but one is we cannot 
ignore that the world reacts differently to women and men. And women are often more harshly punished for risks um, that they take. So one example is I sit on the um, uh, women's leadership board at Harvard Kennedy School for their women in public policy program. And they have some amazing research coming out of there. And Hannah Riley Bowles looked at the impact of women trying to negotiate and that actually backfiring and what they do in those situations because it backfires on women more than men. Yes. Um, and so women often face harsher consequences for risk-taking is one thing that I have seen again and again. So it's not enough just to tell them, be bold, take more risks. It's also about, and this goes back to what we were discussing before, like how do you equip them to deal with things when things fail and how do you help them navigate the gender nuances so that things are less likely to backfire? I like that. So it's almost as if there's an institutional barrier here to the way we reward and punish. Maybe the word punish is wrong, but the way we react to women when they take risks. And I've seen that in my career as well, you know, counseling CEOs and all kinds of executive level members, especially the investor community, while they may say all the right things, but the leash does seem to be shorter for female leaders when they take risks. But what would we do differently? How would do we change that? What can we do knowing there's this institutional barrier? How do we encourage female leaders to cultivate a mindset of intentional risk-taking? So I think it's admitting heads-on that the world is different for women than men. And the world is not fair. <laughs> yeah. So I think a lot of times we gloss over it and I have run programs for even young women in high school, um, entering university. And I think we often do a disservice by just telling people you can be anything you want to be. I mean, the title of my book is about being bold, but it's also about having methods and tools and techniques to navigate gender specific differences. And um, I think that's really, really important when we think about equipping women to be bolder. It's about this is how, this is what, you know, data shows us. And here are some tools we, we think you can use to navigate that better. Um, so it's not that the same thing that works for a man will always work for a woman. Some of the techniques will benefit everyone, irrespective of career level, irrespective of gender, but there are certain things that benefit women even more because of the gender binds they face, because of a confident man is often an aggressive woman, um, because women struggle to be viewed as likable and competent. What does that look like when they're taking risks? Because women in largely male-dominated corporate environments are less likely to benefit from affinity bias and could be left out of certain opportunities or support networks or sponsorship how do we solve for those? And so part of it is around equipping the individual. And I know, Michael, I mean, I, I shared this a little bit earlier, but, you know, I work with individuals as a career advisor and coach, but I also work with organizations so that as we're equipping the women in parallel, how are we changing the narrative, the cultures, the policies, and the processes in our organizations? Because both are critical pieces of this puzzle. That's a very, very articulate answer. I love it. And building on that, I'm going to give you an example here, but I want you to talk me through how you think this 
is playing out and should play out. So we've been talking about an individual female taking on this idea of intentional risk, which is a brilliant concept. I remember once working with a CEO, she was the first and only CEO in a sector worldwide. And she was launching these quite bold strategies for a business. And it wasn't working out so well. And there was a view that her leadership was not effective because her plans were not effective. And in thinking this through, we came to the conclusion that there's no problem with her strategy. The problem is she's not a good operator. She needs to bring in a strong operator to balance her. So the reason I'm giving this example is, is there a role for organizations pairing up females with the right kind of support to balance their primary skills? Is there something there that could be done? So Michael, what I would say is there's something there to be done for all leaders and not just women, because what I don't want to insinuate is that when we put a lead, woman in a leadership role, she's the only one that might need support with operations because oh, your, your example yes. is absolutely fair. But in my experience, I've seen every single executive leader has some gaps yeah. and has some area where they need support. And so I think that same critical lens that you applied to her should absolutely be applied to all leaders, irrespective of gender, saying, what are their gaps and what level of support are they going to need to be successful in their role? To your point, though, I think this may be an even more critical question for women and not because they have more gaps than men. They don't necessarily. We, we all come into roles with our strengths, with the areas that we're developing on and areas where we're, you know, less experienced, but it's because women, because of affinity bias and the existing networks and the fact that men are more likely to sponsor men, there've been so many studies around these areas, they may less likely, they're less likely to be able to fill those gaps that they have with their informal networks. Because men, let's, let's just take affinity bias. It's, it's, it's like, likes, like. And so we're more likely to support those people like us, all of us, whether and, um, and gravitate towards those people. So what I find is women are less likely to have those kind of informal networks to fill their gaps. And so I agree with you that a formalized system may be a better way to go, but that I would take that same lens to all leaders. Yes. And I do want to reiterate here, I was not implying that this only applies to female. The nuance here was in this particular case, I do feel that CEO is being judged harshly because she was female. Yeah. And I don't think the board was giving her enough critical thinking to say there's a difference between strategy and operations. You've got to evaluate them separately. And no leader is going to have skills in everything. That's why you have a chief operating officer. And in that particular case, it was surprising to me why nobody asked the question, why isn't there a chief operating officer? Yeah. It'd be like an obvious question. If your implementation yeah. is failing, where is the chief operating officer? Why are you holding the CEO accountable for that? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I, I think that that kind of critical lens um, should be applied to all. But to your point, it may be harder for for women to pull upon their informal networks, given the data that we have. Um, so some formalized system might be better. So an example of that, Michael, is like when just given up to chance, um, it's shown that men are more likely to 
mentor and sponsor people of their own gender and their own race. And, and that's actually not just men, it's across the board. It was the center for talent and innovation that put this out years ago. And therefore, if you're in a minority position in a workforce or an executive team, you're more likely not to have those connections to fill the areas and give you the support you need. And so you either need to be really intentional about it, or the organization needs to be very intentional about it. Yes. I mean, I remember once doing an organizational study. I can't remember the exact division of the company, but I think it was one of the uh, emerging markets divisions. And we were looking at who are the successful regional vice presidents in this company and who are the unsuccessful regional vice presidents. Mm. And when you pull out the results, the females were doing very badly. And you can draw many conclusions from this, but when we started digging into the numbers of why, we started interviewing people, what we realized is that many of the males had started at the company at a young age because they were brought in by other senior people. And they had the time to develop these fabulous networks across the company so that when they moved into senior positions, they could draw on these networks. But what had happened is the company had started a diversity program rather late And they're putting in female leaders into senior positions, but without helping them build the networks, they never have the time to build in the company. And it's very similar to what you are saying. You've got to understand the reason why people are struggling and fill the voids where you can. Otherwise, you can come up with the wrong diagnosis. Yes, that's exactly right. So sometimes we look at a symptom without understanding the root cause and we think, oh, this is the issue. Um, And we can also use it to confirm our biases. So confirmation bias is a really big thing. And so in that situation, it could be used to confirm an existing bias or hypothesis that women aren't good at operations. Um, It's also if that woman, um, if someone that hired her didn't necessarily or promoted her into that role, didn't necessarily have an affinity for her, they're more likely to feel like when someone isn't as high performing, gosh, I took a chance on this person, but I told you so. Yeah. Well, if it was John in that role and some the hiring person or promotion or boss or CEO has an affinity for that person, they're more likely to say, John's just a good guy. I know he can improve. Let me take him out and give him some feedback over a coffee or a drink, and then we'll go from there. And so it's really interesting the way these biases play out in organizations. And so one thing, I do from the organizational lens is really helping companies think about what are these kind of hidden things that might be holding women back and how can we interrupt them to ensure everyone's getting actionable feedback. Everyone's looking at how do we interrupt our confirmation biases. We're looking at how, who gets high value or high visibility projects. Um, what are our promotion timeframes? So those are, those are all critical areas. And, and like I said, the onus is also Um, on the organization, just to look at that very critically. You explained that very well. And it's true what you say. Many of our biases are subconscious. We don't even know we have a bias in some situations until it's pointed out to us. Yes. And I should say, I mean, this is not saying just men have biases. I want to clarify that for the audience. We all do. So when I talk about affinity bias, my background, I'm Um, a woman, I was born and raised on an Island. I did my undergrad at Brown. I did grad school at Oxford. I'm a Rhodes scholar. I work for Deloitte. Like these are things where I'm more likely if I was hiring to look for someone that might've been a Rhodes scholar, might've been in Deloitte consulting. And so it's, how do we intentionally interrupt those to create more equity in our organizations? And Michael, you said something fascinating, which was 
when you looked at different organizations, it was much more likely that, you know, in the case you talked about that men were hired earlier. And that's actually interesting. And I've seen it again and again, because in largely male dominated organizations that are based on referrals, you're more likely to hire like, Um, and therefore now in the diversity and inclusion space, referral programs are not a best practice because they're more likely to create a self-fulfilling prophecy of a homogeneous culture versus diversifying it. And uh, I think the example you gave actually reinforced that. Yeah, I remember when I was a senior partner in recruiting, my strategy was very different. I would look for people while they were in high school, actually. And I would develop relationships with them, bring them to the firm, introduce them to the partners, and they had a leg up on everyone else because by the time they came in, they had these networks, they could call up a partner. But if someone else didn't have those relationships, they would be at a disadvantage. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit here because you spoke about organizations and so on. And one of the things I've seen in my work around the world is that if you look at the principles espoused by the leaders and what's written on their websites and how they talk about things in the press. In my experience, that doesn't really tell me how a company runs. The best way for me to see how a company runs is to look at the remuneration structure and the incentivization model, because that tells me what they prioritize. So my question for you is that, how are we doing at both incentivizing women to take intentional risk and aligning the companies to support them. Is there more we can do there? Yeah, so it's really, that's a great question, Michael. And um, it's really interesting because it's hard to do work and to answer this thoroughly because I'm sure you can guess or know that although these are great success measures for companies and metrics to look at, most companies do not transparently Um, talk about their compensation structure or equal pay. And it's just recently that we've been actually seeing over the last few years, people openly talking about it now, New York and other um, locations requiring salary ranges, even on um, job postings, but it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to know how we're doing. Is it appropriate to infer that it's hidden so well, because it's probably something worth hiding there? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when I do work with companies and I dive into the salary data, it is very confidential. Actually, it's scary. It is. And I can tell you that there usually is a gender differential um, that companies can explain or justify from a number of different, um, you know, angles. However, the, the, the data still stands in most cases, and it's how do, we, how do we retain women and allow them to build brilliant and bold careers within our organizations and take advantage of you know, over 50% of the world's talent, um, let alone if you look at graduate numbers, which are more. Um, in a meaningful way. And if we're not doing that, then we're doing a disservice to our organizations, our clients and, and everyone. Um, so I think salary, when I talk about looking at uh, measures and metrics of equity in organizations, salary is definitely one of them, time to promotions, one of them, um, uh, representation at different levels. And there's much more intangible ones as well. But I think 
the ultimate thing I, I tell the clients that I work with on inclusion initiatives is, you know, what, what matters should get measured. Um, and if you're not measuring it, you're insinuating that it doesn't matter. And I also know that then what gets incentivized gets done. And that's not because human beings are innately bad. It's just that we get caught up in the day-to-days of client deadlines and to-dos and, you know, proposals and all of this, that other things that aren't incentivized or aligned to your performance management structure or your incentive and compensation structure just won't get done. So what if we rewarded more, more inclusive teams or thinking about more inclusive leaders and what those, what those capabilities looked like, or those that created room for risk and experimentation in their teams, what would that look like? And those are the conversations I get really excited about having. Yeah. And on this point about salaries and benefits, and you made a very good point here, so I'm to build on it, is that I remember working with a consulting partner was asked to come into a resources company and they gave her this just incredible package. It's like, you know, you could never hope to get a package like that. And I remember we're talking it through and we came to the realization, the reason they're offering her such a big package is because there's not going to be a lot of support for her when she takes this role. It's, Mm. It's a compensation for the risk she has to take in her career. Yeah. And that's when we think about big salaries, we must always remember why is the company paying so much? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because the way that I think about risk-taking in careers and making sure that our organizations um, are creating a culture and a structure and policies and processes to allow women and underrepresented groups to, to really rise and thrive, compensation is part of that equation. But if you give someone a high comp for a high risk role without giving them the support to be successful, then that's doing a disservice to the organization and the individual. So my, my question and would be like, what, what level of support, you know, that safety net, those advisors, you know, all of these things, like those areas that you say there might be gaps where someone needs resourcing, like, what does that look like for that individual? And when I'm working with women on negotiations, it's not just on pay. It's on what is going to require, what are you going to require to be really, really bold and brilliant in this role? And that may look different than just dollars. Yes. And in that particular case, what we did is we made a counter offer to the company where we laid out the conditions under which you would accept the role, access to certain resources, access to certain people. Because unless she had access to the chairman of the board directly, Mm -hmm. unless she had control of certain operating units, there was no way for her to execute the turnaround they wanted her to do. It would just be setting up for failure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a fantastic example, Michael. And I've seen a lot, um, like one example of a woman that I was coaching, she was one of the youngest executives ever. I think she was the youngest executive ever in a company that was a family run company, global company that was 150 plus years old. And she was the youngest direct report into the CEO. And this is actually featured um, in my book, her story, because she's such a model for, for risk-taking. And she was in this role where her, her title was had manager at the end. And she was really trying to ignite change in this, you know, 
very legacy company and manage next generation initiatives. Think about millennials at the time, talents, innovation, entrepreneurship within the company. And she wasn't getting the traction and autonomy that she needed to really fulfill the mission of her role. And so her, you know, negotiation at the time didn't just focus on pay or location or, you know, some of these other things, flexibility that other people would think of. It was, how do I have the kind of capital behind me to execute on this without all of the red tape that's holding up kind of this action. And it ended up being a title change to a chief officer title. So that, that was reflective of the fact that she was reporting into the CEO, but also gave her some of that level, like you talk about, to really be successful. And so I think those are really important things to think about women, like compensation is incredibly important, but regardless of gender, we have to think about what are the factors that are going to set this person up for success and impact in their role. Yeah, that's a very good way of articulating it. I like that because I remember also working with a female executive once and it was an operations consulting and she was very bad at operations consulting. I can't lie, she was not good at it, right? But the one way to interpret this is to say she's a bad consultant, but I didn't think she was a bad consultant. I think she was smart. She was very determined. And then I put her into corporate strategy and she became one of the best corporate strategy partners we ever had in the history of the firm. And oftentimes when someone's performing badly, we don't ask the question whether they're in the right role. Yep. We just judge them and say, well, everyone can succeed here. Why are they not succeeding? But sometimes people work better in certain roles, in certain fields. They excel at certain things. And if you give someone the wrong role, they're going to fail or at least not live up to their potential. But I don't see enough companies really having those kind of discussions. How can individuals you know, reading your book and listening to you now, how can they take a more controlling role in their careers where they're almost thinking through a career strategy? Because that's what you're talking about here. How yeah. does one proactively go about developing a career strategy for themselves? Yeah, so I think that there's so many different aspects that are important. And I'll talk, I mean, first, I want to address one thing that you mentioned, um, which was sometimes you can be in the wrong role. And one um, image I use when I work with clients is just a simple Venn diagram. And it's, you know, your three circles and it's, what are you good at? And if you don't know, think about what you're known for, what you're the go-to person for, what people turn to you for, like what it can you do kind of with ease and create value, right? Um, the next is what do you enjoy doing? So for some people, it's what gives you energy, what gives you flow, where do you lose all sense of time? What gives you um, excitement? Like what would you do for free? Like put that in another bucket. And then in the final one is what will drive value or what are the needs of your company and or market, right? Depending on whether you're embedded in a company or an entrepreneur, and so there's so many times in life, and I can talk about my own career and then also those that I've worked with where I'm good at something, but I don't enjoy it 
or I enjoy something and I'm not that great. And it's not something where I feel like the development curve is necessarily going to be worth investing in, um, to that extent. And your real career sweet spot is when you find what is the intersection of what you're great at or what you're good at, what you really get excited about, where you get that flow, where you lose all sense of time and where there is a distinct need. And if you can isolate that, I think that is like some, one of the best places to start, um, is, is one thing. And one thing I encourage women to do particularly because women have, there've been all these studies. I I actually find it fascinating that we still use self-assessments in business because, Um, there have been so many studies that have showed that women consistently underestimate their abilities in comparison to their male peers. And from the Hewlett Packard study onwards, where it showed that women only apply for a job when they're 60, I'm a hundred percent ready. And men do it when they're 60. Like we know that there's this trend and yet we're still using ourselves to judge ourselves. So I often go through an exercise that's called the best self exercise, Um, that came out of the University of Michigan, I believe, with Adam Grant also, who's at Wharton. And it encourages people to ask others around them, when am I at my best? And then really create a self-portrait. And so through doing that, you can help get clarity around what you're known for, when you're at your best, and fill in some of these circles before you think about the need. Because women really struggle with the the self-assessment piece. Yes. And what you say is so true, that it seems obvious, but people don't do that. Uh, because I remember when I used to work with young consultants, they'd always tell me, Michael, I want to be in the strategy practice. And I asked them, why do you want to be in the strategy practice? Because it's a strategy practice. And I say, but, but why do you want to do it? Does it excite you? Do you feel the work is high impact? And they'll say, well, it doesn't excite me, but I think it's high impact because I know this partner did this. And then I'd pointed to them, well, that partner is actually in the org design practice. They're not even in strategy. <laughs> And then they'll point another part and I'll say, well, they're not even in strategy. There's also in org design. What happens is that people decide something is the glitzy and glamorous thing that's going to change their life. But they don't ask the question, where do they do their best work? Yeah. And, and you've worked in Deloitte. You know, the hours consultants pull. It's crazy hours, right? Yep. At a certain point, if you don't love what you are doing, the fatigue is going to wear you down. And yeah. you're never going to be able to pick yourself up. So what you're saying is absolutely true. And I like the idea of a Venn diagram. You've got to look for that intersection. And it doesn't matter if it's not the path you thought. If you love it and you add more value than anyone else, you're going to be successful. Yeah. Well, Michael, I, so I agree with you. And there's something I wanted to go back to on your career strategy question on how you compose oh. a career strategy. Because this is one exercise I do, but I don't, I struggle with this because I think sometimes we want a long-term strategy and we over plan and over analyze yeah. and true. get in this analysis paralysis. And I've particularly seen this with women, but I, with um, clients, irrespective of gender, when really we would be better off if we erred on the side of action. And I always say like, try it, then tweak it. And I'll just give you a personal story quickly is that, um, I was graduating, um, from Oxford during the recession in, I'm trying to think back, I'm going to age myself, um, in 2009. And I had 
um, done two master's degrees with a focus on gender and the workplace and corporate and family-friendly policies. And, you know, everyone at the time said, you know, you're going to be fine. Um, you're a Rhodes scholar. And, you know, the market was horrific and it's relatable to some of the things that people have been going through, um, recently as well. And I remember talking, just being in a difficult place and talking to my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, and saying to him, like, I just don't know what I want to do. And, you know, I know what I'm passionate about. I know what I love, but I don't know how that's going to play out or what's the role. And I was just overanalyzing and not acting. Yeah. And I've realized in my career that there's, there's power in planning and a strategy, but there's also power in acting and learning from that. So Herminia Arbara, who's out of INSEAD, um, has done work on this. And she said something really powerful. It's like that we've been taught to analyze than act, but we'd better be better to act than analyze. And I find that particularly true with women because we'll talk ourselves out of something before we even take that action. And so what if you took this, and I talk about it a bit in my book, this try it and tweak it approach and treat everything like an experiment. And at the time, my husband said to me, you're not just going to like put your finger up in the air one day and be like, this is what I want to do. This is the perfect role. You have to just do and then see. And so the whole purpose of what I talk about in my book is taking a risk, assessing rewards, even if those rewards are learnings from failures, refining your approaches, like thinking about is the outcome of this going to define me or refine me? And then repeating with that new knowledge. And that process of experimentation is so important. And I'd love for people to err on more, what is the method I have for my career versus what is the strategy, if that makes sense. Oh, that makes perfect sense. I love that. That is brilliant. That's something that I always tell people because, you know, whether it's corporate strategy, whether it's a strategy for your life or a strategy for your career, it's still strategy, right? You have to figure out what you're going to do. But oftentimes, as you say, we get caught up in over planning and speaking to yeah. people and figuring out things. And the reality is we're never going to get the information we need to make the correct answer. It's just not possible for us to yeah. have this ability to know if I'm going to love being a senior partner in a law firm, which will only happen in 15 years. And one of the things I've realized, and I picked this up from corporate strategy, is that what is corporate strategy? It's about finding the biggest obstacle in your way and acting to solve it. And one of the things I've told people is that when you're not sure about what your career strategy needs to be, and you're never going to know, find the biggest obstacle that's in your way right now to unlock fulfillment and success in your career. And it's what you're saying. You've got to learn how to act as opposed to overanalyzing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so powerful. And one of the obstacles that I've seen, you know, really be for, for women is when you take a step back, it's often, well, there's multiple self-doubt, fear and fear of failure. And so what I focus on is like, how do you take this risk-taking ritual and apply it to your career from day one to like the rest of your life? And this is something that's a continuous process. We don't get to some end point, like careers are long and they can be fulfilling and enriching, or they can feel kind of binding and constraining. Yes. And so much is in our hands in terms of what is our attitude in terms of things that 
push us outside of our comfort zone, how we approach that, how we step up to the plate, how we recover from setbacks. And I think these are the tools that people need earlier rather than later. I've talked to so many senior leaders that said, I wish I would have known this sooner. And the whole focus of what I'm doing is like, how do we do that from day one on the job? Yes. And building on your great points, the other thing I've seen is that when you choose to act on what is your biggest obstacle, make sure you pick an obstacle that can be solved. <laughs> because I have seen people decide that their obstacle is something they can never correct. Yeah. It's just so big, it's going to take you 10 years to fix it. And then they demortalized after six months. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to break it down into little pieces, you know, critical part thinking. And then, as you say, don't overanalyze it. You know what's the first step. Go after the first step. It's bite size, fix it and move on. Yeah. I mean, so one thing I've researched and talked about is that we often overestimate like the impact of like bid moves or long-term choices or these things yes. that seem like huge risks and underestimate the impact of kind of small courageous acts. And to your point, these incremental changes or habits that we build or steps we take in the right direction can actually have more monumental change in the long run than maybe one big leap. And so I think that is one definitely critical thing uh, to remember as we go on this journey. The other thing is there was a woman years ago, a senior leader that uh, my research partner and I read, um, interviewed from Fidelity. And she had this picture in her room um, around like focusing on the intersection of what matters and what you can control. And it's really powerful as we think about our attention, about our limited hours in the day, about everything, about thinking about working again at that intersection versus spending so much time spiraling around things that are beyond our control. And um, again, going back to Betsy Myers, one of my mentors, she said, you know, um, take victim out, put power in. Another amazing uh, female leader, Claudia Prado from Baker McKenzie said, get out of the passenger seat and get in the driver's seat of your career. And these yeah. things, when you look at them in, in kind of a holistic view of these trends of these women who have just built amazing careers, it's really about owning what you can control and your reactions to change, your agility, your curiosity, your courage, your risk-taking appetite, how you get up from failure and refine your approaches. These, that's where all the magic happens. Yeah, I love that. Those are very good analogies and good quotes. You know, one of the things I tell male and female clients is be aware of the curse of marginal success. What I mean by that is let's assume you're an investment banker and trying to get promoted and you're doing well, you're getting a 5% raise per year. It's not great. It's marginal success. So it gives you the hope that you one day can be successful and you toil away for 10 years, but nothing really happens in your career. And I always tell people that sometimes when you fail completely, it gives you the psychological edge to realize maybe you're in the wrong place versus getting these marginal successes that gives you hope that you'll be successful, but you never end up being successful yet. So what I'm trying to say is sometimes when you take these risks and you do fail, it gives you a different perspective on things. It gives you room to try new things. So when people fail, it's not always bad. Sometimes it's a door to another path that you need to take. Yes, I, I've seen that so many times. And but again, it goes back to your mindset and how yes. you absorb the outcome of that risk-taking. And that's why a lot of my work and research is focused on risk-taking as being the essential career skill set you need to hone and how, what are the methods for that? 
but the mindsets that back that up are really what make it happen. And I had one, um, individual who's featured in my book and she was applying for a promotion. She was working for a top consulting firm. Um, she felt like she was more than ready for it. She didn't get it and she was devastated. So that was a risk she took. But the reward, and I've got this model there, risk, reward, refine, repeat. The reward for her was exactly as you said, she gained clarity around what she really wanted. It was a watershed moment for her in terms of, is this the organization I want to work for? Is this where my skill sets and values are most of impact? And it was almost like this amazing time. And then she used that to refine her approaches in the future and ended up getting an amazing job, um, which was a much better fit for one of the world's top internet providers. And what I share is that that didn't happen without, you know, her going through a really hard time, like moving back in with family, getting support from professionals, thinking through doing introspection, worrying about finances, but it was that moment of clarity that she got sooner rather than later because of the risk she took, where she could have woken up 25, 30 years down the line and been like, why did I never intentionally question this track more? And I feel like you've just also given a perfect example around that. Christy, I must say, this is one of the best discussions I've had in a very long time. And your perspective on leadership, I mean, I see it as part of leadership, is definitely something I've not seen elsewhere either in published literature or other books out there, because oftentimes we treat risk as something we need to mitigate versus a tool we can use to manage and enhance our career. So your book, I'm definitely going to recommend it to our listeners and readers. I think it is a different perspective on leadership. So I want to thank you for writing it and all the great work you're doing. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much. I mean, it's amazing to be in a discussion where you've got such rich experiences that kind of relate to so many of the themes that I've seen over the course of my career. And even though we've had different experiences in different trajectories, there's so many common themes and there's so many areas and challenges and unique kind of issues that, that, and opportunities that I really hope that my book will equip people to use really tactical and actionable tools and techniques to fill. Yes, I totally agree with you. I do find your thinking practical, but I think the points you're making, other people have not interpreted it the way you have. And because you have a different interpretation, you give readers a different mindset. You give them a new tool that they've never had before. Because I, my background is risk and strategies. So I think about risk very differently from other people as something good, as something that you need to understand and manage, but not mitigate. It is something you need to understand because it can actually be, the way I explain it to people is like putting salt in food. It enhances things. Yeah. And I like your thinking. So I want to thank you for all the work you're doing. I hope we'll get you back onto the show in a few months and we can discuss this more. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Um, Thank you so much for this discussion. Take care, Christy. Enjoy Bermuda. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. 
It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.